Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. If you're happy, it's because of her. Welcome, Shaley. <laughs> Thank you, Noel, for that very spirited introduction. Um, okay, so I'm going to read uh, from about 75% of the way through my novel, Real Happy Family. And the scene doesn't require a lot in terms of setup, but what you should know is Colleen. Um, is a woman in her early 40s who has uh, made a train wreck of her life in multiple ways. Um, she's been uh, a spectacle on reality television, having a, a meltdown on live TV. Um, but what's relevant to this scene is that um, she, she's married, um, having some strife in her marriage, um, and she has developed a fierce crush on a much younger musician named Bundy Hessa, um, who's in a very popular indie rock band. Um, she met him briefly at a party several weeks before this scene occurs and feels that they um, had forged a connection. Um, so she finds out that his band is playing down in Los Angeles. She lives in Fresno um, and she's driven down to come to the show in Silver Lake um, to hopefully rekindle what she thought they had had felt at this party. Okay. His name was there on the marquee in green all caps. It was finally happening and Colleen was ready. The club was absurdly crowded, getting to the bar, pushing into stranger after stranger, but she didn't care. She deserved to be there. By the time Colleen arrived at the bar, sweat was beginning to claim the makeup from her face. She ordered a Jameson's straight up and down the cup of whiskey in one swig. It was too crowded to even carry a cup around. Nice, the bartender said. The whiskey seared the back of her throat and landed sourly in her stomach. It felt good. Another please, she said, setting the empty cup on the bar. The stage was lit but empty. The crowd yelled into one another's ears and sloshed their beer onto the floor. Colleen checked her watch, 10.30. She asked a pixie-ish girl wearing a green barrette in her blonde hair if she knew when the next band started. And the girl looked at her watchless wrist and yelled, I just got, I just got here. I'm pretty sure the DNs are, are at midnight. The DNs, the double negatives, that's Bundy's band. On the stage, three people appeared, two skinny guys in snap-down western shirts and a heavyset girl holding a violin. She had dyed red hair, lots of dark eyeliner, and some sort of hideous black skirt made of 
crinoline. <laughs> hey, we're called music for graveyards, she said into the microphone. Colleen found the music a sort of slowed down rock with strings rising over it, surprisingly beautiful, both sad and affirming, and she liked how the girl played her violin with her eyes squeezed shut. The crowd hushed. Nobody danced exactly, but a, collect a collective shifting of body weight from one foot to the other had begun throughout the room. Colleen found it unsatisfying. She wanted to grab another person and move around. Had she and Carl, her husband, ever danced to live music together? She could recall only a single time to the Allman Brothers at the Fresno Fairgrounds at least 15 years ago. The crowd had been bearded and stoned, and she hadn't cared for the rambling, jangly music, but Carl had pulled her close and danced her around the grass, singing along with the band in her ear, and she'd felt giddy in her arms, in his arms. Colleen's whiskey cup was empty, ice sweating through the plastic. It was much easier to get to the bar this time, since the crowd was transfixed by music for graveyards. Time sped up or had it slowed down. One minute the singer, one of the skinny western t-shirt guys, was thanking the crowd and the next Bundy was right there. He stood, at, he stood at center stage, guitar slung over his shoulder, and a black t-shirt and gray jeans over boots that looked, that looked like they were meant for motorcycle riding. He had a beer in his hand and sunglasses propped on his head as if he'd just stepped inside from a sunny day. The crowd pressed forward and Colleen had to move forcefully through it to the stage, pushing on and on, excuse me, excuse me. People stepped aside, complying. She possessed a sort of power tonight. The kids were responding to it. She reached the base of the stage and Bundy was right there, above her, her chin level with his motorcycle boots. It hardly felt real to be near him again. He looked larger, more solid, more handsome than in her memory. There were two other guys about his age on the stage and a girl who looked like she'd been poured from a pitcher of water, impossibly fit thin, with flowing ash blonde hair and a gauzy white dress. She was tipped up on her heels, speaking in the ear of one of the guys, the one with long sideburns and a grandpa cardigan. He wrinkled his brow in concentration, straining to hear her over the burble of the crowd. Then he leaned down to yell something back. It was some sort of argument, and it was delaying the start of the double negative show. Bundy just stood there, drinking from a can of beer that said, pork juice lager. She was close enough to read his beer, beer can, closer than she might ever be to him again. This was her chance to say hi. The volume of the crowd had swelled. Bundy, she yelled, he couldn't hear. She yelled his name as loud as she could, but he didn't even look down. She reached out and grabbed his ankle, gripping so hard he could feel it through the leather of his boot. Surprise, he tried to step backwards. She let go one second too late. He stumbled and landed in a seated position on the stage floor. A minor fall, but clumsy looking. A piercing whistle came from the crowd soaring up over the general racket. A female voice screamed, yeah, Bundy. And then there were more whistles and affectionate catcalls. Bundy stood up and Colleen saw that he was not smiling, that he was in fact pissed. He walked to the, center, he walked to the edge of the stage and hooked his finger toward her, summoning her close. Before he could say anything, she rose on her toes and shouted, I'm so sorry, it's me, Colleen, from that party in Beverly Hill. He leaned down, his face inches from her. When he spoke, she could smell the pork juice lager on his breath. Touch me again, and I'll call security. 
He hopped back toward his band, shouted something at them, and then said into the microphone, this one's from our new record, coming out next month. Music crashed into the air. Colleen felt like she had been punched in the stomach. She whirled around and tried to bolt away, but a wall of people had closed in behind her. The crowd began a collective up and down motion, a sort of group hop. She was trapped. Bundy's music felt like an attack. It was noisier, showier, more chaotic than it had ever sounded over all those sweet miles on the treadmill in her car. Then his voice had sounded vulnerable. Now it was whiny. Like suddenly seeing into the mechanics of a dream, the disappointment of how wild colors and transformations were just a byproduct of synaptic firings and gray matter. Let me through, she screamed into the ear of the girl behind her. It's an emergency, please. Somehow, the girl made room. Colleen yelled the same thing to the next person, a guy in a gray fedora. He jerked away from her, freeing up another slice of space. She darted into it and yelled again to the next person, shoving her way through the pulsing crowd toward an exit, any exit. And in a minute, she was free, outside in the, cool, in the cooling desert night. She found a patch of grass beside the parking lot and dropped to her knees, pitching forward until her nose touched the earth. She stayed that way for a long time, her eyes pinched shut, her body trembling, trying to erase what had just happened, to wipe every trace of Bundy Hesse from her mind. When she rose to her feet, she wanted nothing but to get out of Los Angeles for good. I hate you, she said to the palm fronds overhead. <laughs> Thank you. And welcome to the story again. J.J. Uh, Keith, I love this title, Motherhood Smotherhood, <laughs> Fighting Back Against the Lactivists. Mom petitions, mom petitions, germaphobes, and so-called experts who are driving us crazy. That book will be available uh, starting in September. Uh, JJ Keats' writing about parenting has appeared throughout the internet, including on Salon, the Huffington Post, Babel, the Romp Rumpus.net, Exo Jane, the Hairpin, Alternet, and Roll Reboot, and in print in Reader's Digest, the Sydney Morning Herald, and Bitch Feminist Response to Pop Culture. She lives right here in Los Angeles. We're very happy to have her. Please welcome JJ. Uh, one of the advantages of writing nonfiction is that nothing ever requires any setup. Um, so I'll just get right into it. I love filling up online shopping carts with stuff I'm not going to buy. This is an activity that makes me almost as happy as if I were actually buying stuff. I realize that avarice is one of the seven deadly sins for a reason, and it is kind of gross to gaze longingly at a $3,000 sofa from anthropology for extended periods of time. But it's my harmless vice, and I have no plans of quitting. So when Pinterest came along, I was like, now I can do this all day and share it with people. <laughs> and it was really fun at first. I'd throw up a $1,500 armchair, maybe some dippy dresses from mod cloth that I was too old to wear, maybe sneak in some precious ornate porcelain dishes that would be absolutely idiotic to use around small children. But it was fun. But man, Pinterest, you have changed. The site has blown up and diversified to an incredible degree. The sheer depth and variety of stuff on there astounds me. Artists use it to feel their work, 
Food bloggers use it to spread recipes, comedians use it to share jokes, and parents use it to disseminate tips and tricks, many of which are strangely wonderful, like using paint swatches to make garlands, or dyeing Easter eggs with Kool-Aid. But holy crap, does some of that stuff get out of hand. Has anyone ever wondered aloud, just how many things can you do with a mason jar? If so, the answer's on Pinterest. <laughs> I mean the lunches. Sandwiches to created, created look like a teddy bear's face with little designs drawn all over it using Nutella. Fruit salads arranged to look like blooming flowers with cucumber artfully shaved to create the texture of leaves. Cutting out little mouths from bread and then carefully placing teeny tiny pieces of cheese in to simulate little monster teeth. Stop it! Just stop it! It's a damn lunch! And then there's the nursery ideas. Oh boy. I am never going to understand the impulse to hang a sign in baby's nursery that describes how much the parents love the baby. First of all, <laughs> babies can't read. And even if they could, that's not a signal of affection that's meant for them. They pick up that they're loved by being loved. So those signs are, I guess, for visitors to the nursery. I get that people want to wear their affection for their children on their sleeves. It's a big, big love, and all the feelings that new little babies bring out are overwhelming. But the signs seem kind of redundant. How does hanging a sign on the wall saying, no one will ever know the strength with which you are loved, impact anything? Actually, I have a pretty good guess of the strength with which those parents love their children. I assume it's pretty similar to the strength with which I love my children, because parents loving their children is a totally ordinary thing when you get right down to it. Perhaps if there's anyone out there who doesn't love their children, they should post a sign to that effect, a kind of warning for visitors that they might see something unsettling. <laughs> Not that I can blame parents for getting carried away. On the other extreme, when I was pregnant with my first, I met a woman at a party who encouraged me to not make a nursery for my baby, and instead, I am not even lying, empty out a drawer on my dresser and put a blanket in it for her. Which, actually, now that I think about it, would be basically like hanging up a sign that says, sup, baby, I'm not that into you. <laughs> I went ahead and got a crib anyway. On one hand, Pinterest is a fount of creativity and ingenuity. It turns out you can use leggings to make lampshades. Who knew? But on the other hand, it's a lot of work. Pinterest is driven by the desire for the newest, cleverest, and most novel items, be it chocolate-dipped Oreos fashioned to look like a kitty cat, a breastfeeding cover with boobs printed on it, or a Downton Abbey-themed birth announcement. While there's a million and one wonderful things about the DIY movement as a whole, when it comes to parenting, it can just start to feel like a lot of pressure. If a jelly sandwich looks mediocre when not cut into the shape of a dolphin and placed in a sea of blueberries, Things are getting rough for parents. The perfectionism, the lust for the chicest interior design scheme, the desire to have the jauntiest dinners replete with conversations spurred by handmade topic cards cut into the shape of unicorns and hung from a giant spray-painted topiary rainbow. It's a bit overwhelming. Like, how about I just hang a fucking picture that I think is cool and call it a day? Here's a DIY tip for handmade Valentine's Day cards. Sit a kid in front of a bunch of index cards, hand him a pink crayon. Want a fun dinner idea? Spaghetti. Kids fucking love spaghetti. <laughs> As the desire for novelty escalate, it all escalates, it all becomes a little ridiculous. Yes, those paint swatched collages are cool, but I don't really want to get questioned by Home Depot security for nabbing the whole stack of open sea blue swatches. Sure, I'd love to have the time to make a miniature pop-up books to insert into my kids' lunches every day, but I'd rather go back to the days when drawing a smiley face on a paper bag was enough chirpiness. 
I know that many people truly enjoy making special crafty items, and that's fine. But it's important that if parents do that stuff, they do it for themselves and not to compete with other parents or to prove anything to anyone. If one finds pleasure in crocheting dragon puppets, they ought to knock themselves out. But let's not mistake that for a sacrifice and compulsory activity. As with homemade baby food, working harder at something is not necessarily working better. The cult of effort surrounding parenthood, the idea that if we do more to entertain, delight, and cherish our children, the more we'll entertain, delight, and cherish our children, isn't true. <laughs> One can scratch I love you into a banana so that by lunchtime the scratched area will be dark brown and delight a child. <laughs> or one could just tell a kid that they're loved. I could hand embroider a curtain for my kid's room, or we could just sit on the floor and play Legos. I can do what makes me happy and throw the rest away. I can use a sewing machine to make a reasonably straight seam, and so I make my own curtains. I've been known to spray paint an old chair every now and then. I may or may not have once hand-sewn a pinata Halloween costume for my baby. But homemade teething biscuits? That was a mess. How does anyone screw up homemade Play-Doh? I don't know, but I did. So now I just buy the stuff at the damn store. I will never make a seven-layer rainbow cake. I will probably never make a cake again after the debacle that left me dumping an entire malformed monstrosity into the trash and running to the store 20 minutes before the party started. Sometimes I do what's easiest, though the pervading cultural narrative about parenting is that it's never supposed to be easy. It's the hardest job in the world, allegedly. And surely it is hard getting up five times a night and having huge chunks of my day eaten up by washing bodily fluids out of sheets, but there is so much pleasure in parenting that gets buried under this cult of effort we're all su supposed to subscribe to. I'm not advocating letting babies sit in dirty diapers or feeding the, feeding the McDonald's for every meal. The work of parenting is real and has to be done. Why waste time trying to be perfect when I can be adequate and have enough time left over to fit in a little Game of Thrones after the kids go to bed? <laughs> Parenting conversations are steeped in sacrifice, as if it's a competition to see which of us can be the most selfless. I don't want to be selfless. I like me. Though to be fair, parenting does require a lot of sacrifices. For example, I haven't played Grand Theft Auto since I was pregnant with my first, because I can't have my kids walking in on mommy stabbing a hooker for her cash. But there are so many joys of parenting that get suffocated by the ridiculous expectations and mom petitions. Sacrifices are everywhere, but they're not everywhere, not everything. Sometimes parenting is, e is as easy as slapping a banana and some Cheerios on the high chair tray. Sometimes parenting is lying on the floor reading the Hunger Games trilogy while the baby snoozes alongside. Sometimes parenting isn't even hard. The difficulties tend to be belabored because struggles make things seem more worthwhile, but it's worthwhile anyway. What parents post on social media, mat social media matters because they contribute to the cultural narratives about, excuse me, about parenting. When sacrifice is repeatedly emphasized over pleasure, parenting starts to look and feel like work. And that's when the sanctimony creeps in. Parenthood isn't a competition to see who can make the most sacrifices, work the hardest, and prepare the most adorable deviled eggs. It's enough to keep babies and toddlers from constantly killing themselves without worrying if our fruit salad is pretty enough. It's wonderful to find outlets for creativity and everyday chores, but the quest for internet-sourced and shared novelty is quickly becoming a menace to parental sanity. Thank you, JJ. Iva Pakoda has a great picture in this book, so I'm gonna take a look at it. Iva Pakoda grew up in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, 
and lived in Red Hook for several years. She is the author of The Art of Disappearing, a formal professional squash player. She now lives right here in Los Angeles with her husband. Please welcome Ivy. I guess that's a good picture. I never really thought about it. Anyway, um, my apologies to everyone who's heard this before. Um, there's more new faces than old ones, so I am going to read from the beginning of my book. I'm sorry if I sound like a one-trick pony to people who were at these readings last summer. But I also want to thank JJ, Chaley, and Julia for the opportunity to read at Skylight. I have not yet read here, so this is awesome. And I'm from Los Angeles. Well, I'm from Brooklyn, but I live in Los Angeles, so this is sort of a rite of passage. So, Anyway, I'll begin at the beginning. I'm going to skip a little bit. Uh, there's a character you don't meet. Um, who pops up at the end. His name is Cree. You're not crazy. You just, I skipped that part. So when you meet him, he was there earlier, but we didn't hear about it. Okay. Summer is everybody else's party. It belongs to the recently arrived hipsters in their beat up sneakers and paint splattered jeans spilling out of the bar down the block. It belongs to Puerto Rican families with foil trays of meat, sending charcoal smoke signals into the air, even to the old men in front of the VFW, sitting out, watching the neighborhood pass them by. Val and June lie on Val's bed on the second floor of her parents' house on visitation. The girls are waiting for the night to take shape, watching the facing row of neat three-story brick houses. Although June has the phone numbers of 20 boys in her cell, 10 she'd willingly kiss and 10 she swears are dying to kiss her, the girls are alone. June's been scrolling through her phone book looking for someone she's missed, her polished nail clicking against the screen. If she keeps this up, the battery will be dead by midnight, which is what Val's hoping for. The girls spent another day working at visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary daycare, watching the summer escape while they tended a bunch of babies. They miss the community pool and the open fire hydrants. They miss sitting on the stoop in their bikinis. They miss the shift from afternoon to evening, the gradual migration from hanging out to going out. Still, they made a little cash for when they're old enough to spend it on something interesting. But at 15, all the interesting stuff seems beyond their grasp. This is one of the nice streets in Red Hook, tree-lined and residential, on the predominantly white water side of the neighborhood. Cut off by the expressway from the stately brownstone-lined streets of Carroll Gardens, Red Hook is a mile-long spit stranded at the southern point of Brooklyn, where the East River opens into the bay. In the middle of the neighborhood sits Coffee Park, which splits the front with its decaying waterfront from the fortress of housing projects and low-cost supermarkets at the back. All around the girls, the night is heating up. The stoops are filling, some with newcomers dressed in second-hand clothes, others with grizzled men sucking air through their teeth as if this might cool things down. It's a hot night in a calendar of hot weeks. The community pool has been packed, its surrounding concrete a mosaic of bright towels. The local firehouses, the Red Hook Raiders and the Happy Hookers, have been clocking overtime, circling the neighborhood to shut off illegally opened hydrants, telling kids to go cool off elsewhere. People have been doing their best to stay out of each other's way. By this point in the summer, everyone's developed a beat-the-heat routine, a soaked do-rag tied around a scalp, a tiny fan held inches from a nose, a cold beer cracked before lunch. In the backyard, Val's sister Rita and her crowd have taken over the above-ground pool, still celebrating their high school graduation two months on. The paved yard is littered with cans of Coors Light and rolling bottles of high-proof lemonade. Val and June stood at the edge of the party for a while, but the talk turned to things they weren't supposed to know about. Eventually, Rita sent them indoors. 
That boy in the lawn chair, June said as the girls climbed the stairs. He grabbed my ass. He totally grabbed it. She's glowing beneath her outrage. Your butt fell into his hand is all, Val said. June's curves are, ev are everywhere these days, especially where they don't belong, bursting th through the buttons of her school uniform or falling out of her two short shorts. The girls, once a match set, now seem to be fashioned from different material. Val, whose pale skin repels the sun, is made of reeds and twigs, like the sad saplings planted in the park that shoot up but never seem to leaf out. June, blessed with an olive complexion even in winter, is formed of something soft and pliant, clay maybe, or cookie dough. Somewhere, Val suspects there may be boys who admire her bamboo limbs, but out here in Red Hook, everyone goes for June's generous shape, her elastic breasts and rear that she seems to re-sculpt every night, giving the neighborhood something fresh to look at. Even her wavy brown hair appears mischievous in the way it curls and bounces. Val's hair, an unremarkable straw color, strikes her as lacking in enthusiasm. Val knows that time is short for kids' stuff. When school starts, they'll be expected to turn up at, par turn up at parties, looking on point, made up and polished. But sometimes Val can't resist, res uh, sometimes Val can't restrain her silliness. After being cooped up in that daycare, she wants to be naughty. Not that in-your-face naughtiness of scoring a bottle of something sweet and alcoholic or sneaking a cigarette. What she's after is a prankish secret the girls can share someday, when they're on some guy's couch, tipsy or even high. The window is open wide. June's positioned herself near it and hops to her feet each time she hears footsteps. She stretches out her arms, grasping either side of the window frame. I'm going to get my groove on tonight, she says, loud enough for anyone passing to hear. I'm going to turn it up. She rotates her hips and thrusts her chest forward, her short strain at the seams. Val worries that if June arches her back another inch, the whole package is going to burst. I'm going to show them how it's done, she says. Something about June's posture reminds Val of a bag of microwave popcorn. She falls back on her bed, her laughter pouring out into the streets. Baby, June says, you laugh like a baby. She leaves the window, flops down on the bed, but keeps her distance from Val. She checks her nails and pulls out her phone. Let's do something. We could camp out on the roof, Val says. June does not look up. Or watch a movie? You want the world thinking we're babies forever, June says. There's nothing wrong with movies, Val says. June stands up. I'm getting us a drink. Five minutes later, June returns with a half-empty bottle of alcoholic lemonade. Did you pick up someone's empty, Val says. I drank half of my way up. We could take the raft out, Val says. It's something. June finishes the drink. You have some stupid ideas. Your only idea was stealing a half-empty bottle from my sister, Val says. Just get the goddamn raft, June says. She tilts her head upwards, tosses her hair, exhales an invisible cigarette. Don't be such a bitch, Val says. The rubber raft was a gift from a crew of older guys who taunted and teased them and finally made a play for the girls at the pool last weekend. What they wanted with a hot pink rubber raft, Val and June didn't know, but they took their prize. Tonight, hot and stir-crazy, Val decides what the raft is for. Take a float in the bay, cool off, see what's what from the water. The girls choose the water between the Beard Street Pier and the rotting factory where a two-masted sailboat is taking its time sinking into the murky basin. Never mind that the water is dirty and that they aren't the best swimmers. And never mind that they are going to have to paddle through that grimy water with their hands. They figure they'll float around this pier and pass the next two, then get out on the little beach next to Valentino Pier. Couldn't take more than half an hour. It's crazy dark down by the water. Their footsteps are loud and hard, bouncing off the warehouses. Only a ten-minute walk from home, yet they'd never been to the waterfront at night. Never been to this stretch of waterfront, period. 
Until they got in sight of the water, they pretended their parents' warnings were a lot of nonsense. But now there seems to be something hiding in each shadow, scattering the litter and rubble. It doesn't seem possible that they have this place to themselves. There must be someone lurking behind the cracked windshield of a rusted-out station wagon, someone watching them from the ruins of the sugar refinery. The waterfront creaks and resettles. The decaying groan of old wood is a ghostly moan. The rhythmic bang of a boat against the pier is the approaching of footsteps. Something clatters down the refinery's dilapidated chute and plunges into the water. The girls grasp hands and start singing, chanting, making a lot of noise, trying to outdo whatever fell down that chute, attempting to subdue the darkness. But the brick warehouse and the basin throw the song back, distorting their voices so they sound unfamiliar to themselves. June points at the sugar refinery. Heard it's haunted, she says. Probably someone over there right now watching us. Val glances at the skeleton of the refinery. Ghost better not mess with us, June says. You want to go back, Val says. There's movement in the refinery. She's sure of it. Something, someone ra rattling in the large metal dome. Nah, June says, turning her back to the building. But Val can't take her eyes off it. She watches the chute, checking to see if it sways. The girls turn up the volume, chanting louder. They tiptoe onto the green fuzzed rocks and lower the raft into the water. June stands back. You first, she says. Val shakes her head. Your raft, your idea, June says. Val squats down, trying to avoid touching the rocks, and falls back on the raft. It buckles under her weight, and she's swamped by the oily water. Nasty, she says. June closes her eyes and scrunches her face, then sits down behind Val. The raft, the raft submerges, soaking the girls up to their chests. Damn, that's cold, June says, shaking as if she can escape the wet, and nearly knocking the girls into the drink. Then the raft adjusts to their weight, pops back up, and they float. The water is chilly and slick. The girls paddle hard and erratically with their hands, pushing away the junk that keeps approaching the raft and trying not to look at the gloomy area underneath the crumbling sugar refinery. The raft swings close to the half-sunk sailboat, and the girls kick frantically, not wanting to tempt whatever went down with it. The water smells rank. There's something pulling from below the raft that makes it spin. What is that, Val asks. She feels the raft buckle in the middle. She stops paddling and lets the pink rubber flatten out beneath them. It's like a water slide, June says, through clenched teeth. Yeah, just like Coney Island, Val says. She checks the shoreline that is quickly sliding away behind them. They clutch the raft with rigid hands. They are unwilling to let go, unable to pull themselves out of the swirling current. Don't rip it with your nails, Val says. They are out deep now, too far from the questionable comfort of the shore. We've got to paddle, she says. They let go and slap the water with their hands. Finally, they get out past the pier and let their arms rest. They float into the basin where the water has a regular beat. The moon shining like it's out of its mind. The raft is handed from one wave to the next. To their left, Staten Island is glittering, its houses lighting up its hills with an LCD display of red, green, and white. Tankers like Shining Islands sit in the bay, heavy and motionless. Straight across, the cranes in the port of New Jersey look like some kind of Jurassic fantasy land. A tugboat passes in front of them. The girls scream and bend forward and try to balance so they're not swamped in its wake. Small waves break over their legs and waists. Floating is wilder than Val expected. The silhouettes of the city in Jersey rising on all sides, the water stretching out dark and vast. But it's the silence, only now and then disturbed by the call of a foghorn, the crash of a wave tangling with the pylons, the rhythmic beat of a boat somewhere out there that grabs her. 
They float by the wreck of a tugboat. The moon is trapped in one of the sunken windows, its reflections struggling through the dark water. The girls grasp the edge of the raft and see the blank eyes of the porthole staring back at them. There's a new swell in the water, a deep, insistent tug. If Val could forget the bay's depths, she'd be willing to follow this current wherever it leads her. We could keep going forever, Val says, looking over her shoulder at June. June is no longer cl- cl- June is no longer clutching the raft. She's trailing her hands in the water, small ripples receding from her fingertips. As the raft rounds another pier, the Manhattan skyline bursts into view, towering over the black hump of Governor's Island. The buildings claw the sky as if they are desperate to get out. The girls are pulled forward by the fresh current of Buttermilk Channel, but it seems to them that the city is drawing them in. That's where we belong, June says. She raises her arms and snaps her fingers. No more wasting time. Stop it, Val says. She's not looking at the city. She's watching its reflection stretching out into the water in front of them. Stop. Cree stashes his bucket in line and begins to pick his way along the waterfront. He passes underneath the chute of the refinery where sucrose refuse was dumped into the basin. He rounds the Beard Street Pier, balancing on the jagged rocks at its short edge along the water. From the far side of the pier, he can see the pink raft bobbing in the middle of the bay. The girls' voices carry, their laughter electrifying the lonely water. They're taking over the gloomy basin with their dinky raft, exploring the currents and depths shut off to Cree since his father's death. He wonders how far they dare to float. The raft rounds another pier and bobs out of view. Cree scrambles. He wants to keep the girls in sight. Somewhere out in the bay, a foghorn cuts the silence, its low groan rolling across the water like a shudder. There's a rocky outcrop between the next two piers. A large warehouse blocks Cree's view. He stumbles, gashing his knee on a cement pylon. Stagnant water is pooled between the rocks. Cree cups his hand over his wound, trying to avoid the water's grimy foam. He's on the next pier now and can hear the girls again. Their words are indistinct. He catches sight of the raft bobbing in the water heading toward Manhattan. Cree turns and runs toward Valentino Pier, now a promenade for old fishermen and young couples. This late he expects to have it to himself. He can hear the girls again as the raft approaches. He crosses the small park that leads to the pier and hurries to the end of the concrete walkway. The raft is crossing in front of them, the girls' two dark silhouettes against the distant Jersey docks, and then they are gone. Thank you. Our last reader, who came all the way from Brooklyn, Julia Fierro. Uh, is the founder of the Sackett Street Writers Workshop, which has been a creative home to more than 2,000 writers since 2002. Um, they can talk to you afterwards about that, right? Oh, please feel free. Anyone wants to go to the Sackett Writers Workshop? Here she is. Uh, a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, where she was a teaching writing fellow. She's written for Guernica, The Millions, Flavor Wire, and other publications, and has been profiled in the Elle magazine, Brooklyn Magazine, The Observer, and The Economist. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their two children, and we're glad to have her in Los Angeles. Welcome, Julia. Great. Hey. I'm going to take a picture of you guys. There's so many special people here. Oh my gosh. This is, it's so cool when you sit down like before a little early and then when you get up here and you see all your peeps. Um, okay, just really quickly. Oh, it's so nice. Sweet chili, your head's blocked by the microphone. Okay. Yes, uh, later. Okay. Um, in like 
15 minutes. Um, so thank you so much, everyone, for coming here. There's so many wonderful people here who were either part of Sackett Street many moons ago or um, early readers, my friends Lisa and Matt, um, and Chaley, who edited my book and really made it just 10 times better than it already was. Actually, it was kind of a mess. But um, so thank goodness for Chaley. And um, Chaley and Chris have been letting me stay in their playroom for a couple of nights, so I'm very grateful for that. And it is really, even though I know Brooklyn to LA is not that big of a deal for many of you jet setters. Um, I really don't like flying or leaving Brooklyn or leaving my home. So I, um, you know, I'm really, really happy that you're here because you've made the trip so, so worth it. Um, and thank you so much to Skylight Books. I've heard so many great things about Skylight and it was really, it's just such an honor to read here um, with such amazing writers. And, um, and I hope everyone will support Skylight, m not just by buying my book, but any book, um, because it's so incredibly important to have independent bookstores. And um, I'm gonna read from Cutting Teeth which was published in May. And um, here's what you need to know about Cutting Teeth. It's about a group of, um, a bunch of couples, 30-something couples who just happen to live in Brooklyn like me and have young children like I do. And they decide to go away for a weekend together to a beach house, which of course turns out to be terrible. And, um, you know, friendships crack, relationships are destroyed, um, and there's also a lot of funny, funny things that happen because they bring their young children along with them. Um, and so there's seven different perspectives in the novel. Um, five are women, um, most of them mothers to young children. Um, one is a stay-at-home dad um, who's desperate to maintain his stay-at-home dad status, and we'll hear from him in a little bit. And there's also a Tibetan nanny. Um, so I'm going to read from um, the character who turned out to be the most controversial character, but she's my favorite. Um, and her name is Tiffany. And she represents, for me, I guess, a, a bit of the American dream. She grew up working class in rural Long Island, and she's reinvented herself and rewritten her story. And now she's hanging out with all these super yuppie um, moms. And so um, that's her story. Okay. Tiffany had loved her mother's white leather dress. Zip me, baby, her mother had said as she had tugged the dress on over her black push-up bra. And Tiffany, just eight years old, had stood on tiptoes to make the zipper glide right to the top. I could pass for your sister in this, her mother turned her padded shoulders and smoothed the leather that clung to her hips as she examined herself in the mirror. Don't you think, Tiff? Totally, Tiff said, because she knew that was what her mother wanted to hear. Tiffany's mother always left the house looking perfect on a first date. Not a crease in her dress, not a scuff on her matching white pumps, not a crimp in her blown out and hairspray stiffened hair. Tiffany could still taste the mint on her mother's lips as she kissed her goodnight before her mother climbed into whatever pickup truck, Bronco, or Trans Am her date was driving. 
When Tiffany's father came home after two years in the service and set up a mechanic's garage in the front yard of their small house in their small town on the North Fork of Long Island, he'd gotten himself a new girlfriend, a waitress from the barbecue place on Main Street who lined her lips with brown pencil and who he took around town. Now, as Tiffany looked into the dusty mirror of the beach house guest room, she thought how silly she'd been believing that damn dress, the be-all and end-all, when it was the tackiest thing on earth. She painted her lips with Tom Ford's Cherry Lush, $45 a tube, a birthday gift from old Susie Harcourt, Tiffany's first employer. Years ago, when Tiffany had stepped off the Greyhound bus for the second time, her first stab at New York City life having been a failure, she'd been struck lucky, hired by society semi-diva Susie Harcourt, whose twins Tiffany would nanny on the Upper West Side until Harper was born. Susie taught Tiffany all she'd need to blend in with women's several tax brackets above the couples who filled the beach house that weekend. Susie had taught her to be a class chameleon, and Tiffany had learned that florals and plaids could go together if you had enough blue blood flowing through your veins, that straight hair versus curly spoke of refinement, and that anything frosted, bleached, or acid-washed was out of the question. Susie had taught Tiffany of, about quality, of bedsheets, of furniture, of wine and cheese. Susie had revealed to Tiffany the secret code, and then Tiffany had made Michael fall in love with her. Michael, who had a degree from a private university, who ate sushi, who used words like woodsy, floral, and earthy when drinking wine. If Susie Harcourt and her Tory Burch sporting friends had known about Tiffany's mother and her morals and her white leather dress, they'd never have let Tiffany walk through the lobbies of their luxury buildings. How their wrinkle-free foreheads would have cracked with concern if they'd known about her mother's slutting around, not to mention her sister Leanne, the meth head, and Tiffany's abortions. Tiffany knew rich women had abortions, but they didn't have to drive to a clinic in the middle of a small town. She imagined they were chauffeured to dim and quiet parking garages in Midtown. Their uterus was scooped clean as classical music played over an intercom, and they left almost as they came, sight unseen, not a peep to anyone. Money not only equaled time, Tiffany had learned, money had meant privacy. Tiffany was 17 when she made it out of her hick town for the first ill-fated attempt at living the New York City dream. She'd been sick of her father taking half her waitressing paycheck for rent, sick of her friends crying about their loser boyfriends, sick of her stepbrother asking her to suck him off. One night after a party in a factory loft in Williamsburg where everyone was rolling on E and laying tabs of acid in the shape of blazing suns on their tongues, she had awoken in a dark room on a striped mattress that smelled like puke, unable to speak or move as some guy pounded into her. She'd spent the rest of that night willing her body to move, begging her body to roll off the bed, move, goddammit, and finally crawled to the door only to realize she couldn't turn the knob. They came back maybe three, maybe four times. She'd never know how many times, how many guys, who. She'd never, known, she'd never know if they drugged her. She had taken the E and the acid herself. She went to parties in the months that followed and found herself staring at her feet, terrified to look up. 
What if they were sitting next to her, laughing at her in their heads, thinking of the way her tits had flipped around as they slammed into her? At the last party she went to, she had stumbled out and onto the dead street of a neighborhood she didn't recognize. When she finally hailed a cab and made it back to her apartment, the sky a battered violet with the coming dawn, she stayed in her room. Days passed, then it was a week, two. Her roommates in that mouse-infested loft, all sweet suburban-bred girls whose parents, in Tiffany's humble opinion, had loved them too much, had taken care of her. They fed her microwaved ramen from styrofoam bowls. They washed her hair. They guided her to the already running shower and massaged shampoo into her hair. They stubbed out her parliaments after she'd fallen asleep. But when the first of the month came, and then the seventh and the fourteenth, and Tiffany still hadn't slipped her portion of the rent into the envelope taped to the fridge, they asked her to leave. She ate her last bowl of ramen and swallowed her last clonopin, a gift from her most recent ex, the pres prescription drug dealer slash Ivy League grad. She'd gone back to her middle of fucking nowhere hometown out on the end of Long Island. She crashed at an ex-boyfriend's place. He was squatting in an unfinished house. Pink insulation bulged through the beams and the ceiling. There was a wordless fuck with him every night on the sunken couch, the price of rent, but she threw back two of his Xanax 20 minutes before and was half asleep when he came. She visited her father and stepmother Shelley over casserole dinners at the ramshackle house, the cr a trailer with ill-proportioned adjoining rooms her father had built himself. For three brisk autumn nights, she'd sat with her father and Shelley under the oak trees, the night smelling of low tide and fire smoke as they roasted chestnuts over the pit. Shelley filled her in on who had married whom, who had had whose baby, who had collected enough DUIs to send them to jail. As she listened to the lilting waltz of Shelley's voice, Tiffany tried to remember how to talk in that way. Maybe, she thought, it would help her tell them what happened. The slow-paced chit-chat that mimicked the swaying branches above. As her father recounted the latest nor'easter and the damage done to the town bowling alley in the floods, Tiffany told her father that something bad had happened to her, had been, been done to her. She wanted him to ask what, and wanted him to say, it's okay, you can tell me. And then she'd tell him, and he'd hold her and stroke her hair, and promise he'd find those motherfuckers and tie them to a tree in the woods and cut off their dicks and feed them to the muskrats in the marsh. But her father didn't ask. He made a sound, a humph, and after a few moments of nothing but twigs crackling and chestnut shells popping, he said, best to move on, I told you to be careful. Later that night, she walked the crack road that led to town, walked the three miles, the cold, salt-filled wind of the nearby shore stinging her cheeks. She prayed to God as she walked, her sweat-damp hair froze into solid strips. She slept on the chilled aluminum bench at the Greyhound stop, and when the bus pulled up, she left everything behind her. She wasn't like the other women at the beach house that weekend, she thought now, as she stared at her image. They could feel safe in a godless world, so much so that they'd brag about it, as she'd heard them do many times. It's not like I believe in God or anything. Well, you know, I don't believe in God, only in free will. Not believing in a higher power was a privilege, Tiffany knew. 
A woman had to have a shitload of self-esteem to walk around thinking she was the most important part of the world, that she called the shots, that she held the reins of her own fate. So that was a little bit of a serious section of the book. Now I'm going to read a very brief section that hopefully you'll think is slightly funny. And um, it's from the the stay-at-home dad character's perspective. His name is Rip, and he loves his stay-at-home dad life, and he's desperate to maintain it. So he's trying to convince his wife to have another baby so that he doesn't have to go back to work. So... Everyone knows somebody like that. Um, And so um, that's pretty much all you need to know about him. Okay. In the last three plus years, Rip had logged hundreds of hours at playgrounds, play spaces, and play groups. He'd be lying, and every play date was a lesson in the new boundaryless definition of gender. He'd be lying if he didn't admit to enjoying the more obvious perks for a hetero, very hetero, he liked to think, guy living the stay-at-home dad life. Mommy smelled nice and served delicious snacks. Never was there a bottle of vino under $13 at the playgroup. Each day held umpteen chances. He'd catch a glimpse of cleavage or the curve of a butt cheek winking at him through those tight jean leggings the mommies loved to wear. So are called jeggings. Rip often felt as if you were living a kind of fantasy, the setting for a cliched porn. Like when Tiffany, the extreme domestic goddess in the group, and let's face it, Rip thought the hottest mommy, had invited Rip and his son Hank over so Rip could help her can the blueberries they'd picked upstate. While Billie Holiday had crooned and Hank and Harper built snowmen with homemade Play-Doh, Rip held the mason jars as Tiffany poured the jam that slid almost seductively into each hot glass container. He had watched Tiffany's braless breast quiver through the thin cotton tank top, smelled the nectar covering her hands, her slender forearms staining her puffy lips. He'd felt a compulsion to taste her and felt certain in the way she let her tongue slide over her bottom lip, the way she let her long hair tickle his cheek as she bent to screw on the jar tops, that she too wanted him to slip his hand over the breasts he had seen so often. Breasts, breasts, and more breasts. It had been four years of nipples, all shades of pink and brown, erect and glistening, fresh from a satiated baby's mouth. (laughs) Only Lee was so modest as to breastfeed with a swaddle blanket shielding her. He'd known Susanna's breasts, small but perfectly shaped, Nicole's breasts, large with wide purplish nipples, and Tiffany's, his favorite. Full and white, almost translucent, a network of blue-green veins radiating from her petal pink areoli. It's Latin. <laughs> Tiffany had zero qualms about unleashing her breasts for Harper to nurse anywhere and anytime. And Rip had seen them enough to memorize them, to think of them as old friends. These weren't women to hide themselves. These were the daughters of the daughters of the feminist revolution, after all. They'd taken month-long prenatal breastfeeding classes. They'd given up trying to hide a wriggling baby under their $50 hooter hider nursing covers. And Rip could see in their eyes and in their relaxed smiles a gratitude toward him for giving them permission to let their breasts roam free. The mommies thought of him as Mama Rip, diaper changer, boo-boo kisser, nose wiper, playground pal, a sensitive shoulder to cry on when the monotony of motherhood felt like just too much. 
How little they knew about how grateful he was for their breasts. <laughs> Thank you. Let's thank the writers collectively. Thank you all. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.